0: And welcome to episode 38 of The Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. I'm actually really surprised that I remembered it was 38. Is that right? (laughs) That is right. (laughs) Well done me. Um, So yes, we are back. Welcome to London. How has it been being here the past week? It's been very... Interesting. Is it weird going from Edinburgh like going really Edinburgh to London and back again and, you know? I feel
1: very unadjusted to London life and I've forgotten mm. how many people there are mm. and how much... I just basically feel really overstimulated because there's so many faces and there's so many adverts and there's so much to read and too many things going on. and no adverts have like, in Edinburgh. There's just not anywhere near as many. Really? Because you don't have the tube. Okay. So you know in the tube it's just like yeah. every single just always, all the time. And in Edinburgh, it's the occasional bus and the occasional billboard. And is normally, there, the whole, all the buses have the same adverts. Is if there you've something already in London
0: it. you miss? What do you miss most about London? Um, I miss things like book launches. That's such a geeky thing to say. Which, by the way, you went to recently because you were able to pop over to Brighton, which is also a benefit of London. Which book launch did you go to? Gina Martin. Gina Martins it was so good I wish you could have been
1: there it was fantastic and our charity the month actually for June is going to be survivors which was rape victim service Mm -hmm. um and it was highlighted by the founder of drawings of dogs and he has worked with them and he does political cartoons oh cool and so the whole book launch was a conversation between Gina Martin and Henry And the book is about activism, so it's a toolkit for activism, and I've already devoured almost all of it. It's so well written and really practical, but also there's lots of lovely sections on different activists and what their views are and what they've done, and kind of it's really inspiring. I think it would be difficult to read that book and then not have an idea of something that you Mm. would like to change, whether it's big or small.
0: What did you think of Extinction Rebellion?
1: I haven't really done that much research into it. That's the other thing about living in Edinburgh, I feel totally out of the news bubble. I have not kept up with anything. <sighs> so one of our figures today is
0: quite topical. It is. And I panicked. I think <laughs> Extinction Rebellion is interesting because in terms of activism, it's probably the most... I don't want to use the word extreme, but it's pretty pretty hard-hitting. Um, in that, you know, activists essentially just blocked roads, chained themselves to buildings, and um, I think it was for 30 days and just kept swapping out. And so many of them were arrested that they ran out of space for them in London. So they had to take them outside of London. No way! Um, yeah, yeah. Wow, um, that's and huge. There were lots of debates at the time because, for example, my stepfather was really, really against it, and he was, that was absolutely ridiculous. It's that they're blocking. You know, transport and and, and things. And and then the other side of the debate is, well, what else do we do to... Yeah, people need to start listening. The government needs to start listening. Right, but they're also very preoccupied. So it's it's, it's difficult. Yeah.
1: I think it's only going to get more and more. I I know. I think there will just be more and more rallies and protests and Mm. groups fighting for... I know. Keeping on. But it's interesting, healthy. I feel
0: like it's very topical bringing out a book on activism because it, it's obviously yeah. so much is going on right now.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think that she, for every um, book signing that she did, she spoke to a different activist. Oh, cool. Which I really like that way of doing it because mm. otherwise, and it must be, have been much more fun for Gina because then she is having different conversations each time rather mm. than going over the same thing over and over and over again. Mm. And something I thought was really interesting is that she has obviously had to talk about her experience of upskirting a million times. So much. But it's, in a way, sometimes when something traumatic happens to a woman, you've got to almost keep on saying it to keep validating it because it's like people don't quite believe what's happened. So true. But that's so difficult and so Mm. triggering. And I don't know how she's managed to keep coping with that because the introduction of this book goes into real detail of what actually happened in a way that she can't in very quick interviews Mm. and it's just so horrendous what happened to her and what's happened to so many other Mm. girls and school children sometimes Mm. and then the number of messages that she got about victims of upskirting was just overwhelming and it really Mm. pulled like drew her on drove her on in her campaign
0: yeah on a another note what are the top three podcasts that you have been enjoying the last two months
1: okay so I have a very big list um top three I'm gonna do top three new ones that I haven't talked about before okay so work like a woman with Mary Portas Mm -hmm. is fabulous and I didn't really know very much about Mary Portas before I started listening to it but she's such a queen of the high street and is, I love her attitude towards everything. She's just no-nonsense mm-hmm. and very knowledgeable and asks great questions and has really interesting guests. So Elizabeth Day has been a guest and Viv Groskop has been a guest, who I think we saw at the Edinburgh Fringe. She's written a book called How to Own the Room and that was a great episode. They talked about, I think it's called social editing, where young girls in particular just pick up on things that they are expected to do. And then it's sort of it's this um it's the same as Chimamanda says, like you you're taught to make yourself smaller. Mm. And like the kind of societal expectations. So I thought that was really interesting. I've also been listening to About Race, which is Renie Edo Lodge's podcast. Oh, I didn't
0: know she had one.
1: It's interesting. really interesting. It's very it's, it's interesting from a production point of view as well, because it's quite, um, they pull in lots of different voices, and it's edited in a, it's not just a straightforward kind of one-to-one conversation, it's just much, there's much richer and deeper than that in each episode. Um, and I have also been listening to Table Manners finally so I have a new resolution which is never to resist Georgia's recommendations because they're always really good this is true and sometimes it takes me a really long time to get round to things and I don't know why Big Little Lies being the prime example which is
0: back I know season two it's so so good it's so good um
1: but Table Manners is, is so heartwarming and my favorite episode so far is obviously with Richard
0: Curtis and Emma Freud there's so many more and they're um, actually better like there are some that are better than that like they're they're really 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 good interviews and basically for anyone who hasn't listened
1: to this and uh, like me might have been resisting the recommendation uh, they it's Jessie Ware and her mum Lenny and they cook for a celebrity Mm. or musician or whoever their guest is and then they talk about food and life Life, and it's lovely and
0: rambly it is what about you? Mm. okay so top three would probably be Dan Snow's history hit. This oh is, yeah. This is a huge one that's kind of exploded. Really interesting.
1: He's interviewed Ethel Hirsch, I've listened
0: to that episode. I've listened yeah. to a couple of them. He's good, he's mm. good. Um, I have been, I can't not mention Crime Junkies. I've probably been, so this is this is a podcast uh, on, on true crime. I would recommend it. Um, Which means I'll have to listen to it. It's had like 10 million downloads. It just Whoa. shows our fascination with yeah, things that aren't very nice and that have happened to people. It's all true stories. It's about people who are missing, people who are murdered, um, serial killers. like, And they're all true cases. So you can Google all of them. And the host does such a fantastic job of telling the story and it's just really interesting it's just another thing people ask me sometimes like why do you listen to happy Mum, happy baby and the real answer is it's just a human condition it's just another mm. way of asking people about their experiences and i don't want to compare the two podcasts so they're very different but crime junkie is just another one it's just oh wow what, what a what a weird world we live in and and and, and how and you know i love figuring out pre- Mysteries and different things and why things mm. go wrong, I think I also have a fascination with things that are probably quite gruesome as well um but they it's really well produced, and I've also been enjoying um gosh, there are a lot, but I also <laughs> quite like um beyond today yes, that's a great program that's made very well um and also, can I just say th- this was recorded... i mean you heard it everyone heard it here first, but you know how I banged on about the daily last year. <laughs> Look what podcasts podcast is now, everyone is talking about, everyone is obsessed with it. Michael Bobborough has now become this like, kind of, I don't know, fan fiction character and so like, loved and adored. And me, Georgia Parkin, sat on this podcast last year in May and told you all to listen. So I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? The
1: first figure that we're going to talk about today is Sir Elton Hercules John, to use his full name. Wait, what? Hercules? Yeah, that's his middle name. He changed it officially in 1972. Oh, so he was born, he was actually born Reginald Kenneth Dwight. Yeah. And then he went to... Elton Hercules John. Great. And the reason that he um, changed it to Elton John was because of Elton Dean and Long John Baldry, who were both blues legends. Mm. And who he was inspired by... Yeah. Yeah. Um, So he was born in 1947, so he's now 72, going on strong, still going on tall. Sort of ageless, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's just amazing. Yeah. Um, And one of the reasons that we're talking about him today is that the new biopic... Rocket Man. It's not actually that new anymore. Mm. But that has been another kind of limelight on his life and work. Mm. And we also have Lion King coming up, yeah, which is very exciting. I don't
0: know, did everyone know? Well, this is a rhetorical question, because obviously you guys can't respond to me. But did everyone know that he wrote The Lion King? I definitely King? knew that. I didn't know that. And so he, he wrote, wrote oh, Circle, oh, Circle of, of Life, Kuna Matata. Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Can You Feel the Love Tonight, of course. I knew that was Elton John. I didn't. I don't know why I didn't think Hakuna mm. Matata was. And the
1: lyrics were written by Tim Rice. So that's... Should we start with that? That's quite an interesting mm. element of him as a musician because he very rarely writes his own lyrics.
0: I know. I never... I don't know why I didn't think that, but I didn't think that that was the case. But actually, not everyone... Would necessarily be able to write the lyrics and mm. melodies and you know mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff but mm-hmm. i didn't realize his relationship with bernie Taupin was so significant yeah musical soulmates is what they called them
1: oh i love that yeah that's so beautiful mm. but it's it's one of those partnerships where you just think i'm so grateful that they found each other yeah. and that they started working together Definitely. because there are so many i mean they he produced 37 albums yeah there's so many songs that wouldn't exist with if had they not crossed paths. I know. Yeah. Mad. So one of the songs that he did write was Don't Go Breaking My Heart. He did write the lyrics for that. But in every interview that I've listened with him, he's, also, he's always like, I just can't mm-hmm. write lyrics. But what he is brilliant at is writing the music. And he likes being given lyrics and then... The, the notes just seem to come to him. It's such a gift. Mm. And he is an incredibly talented p- piano player and went to the Royal Academy of
0: Music. I know, I didn't realise that yeah. either, that he was Royal Academy. Because mm. um, that's really close by to here, where we're recording right now. So it's, it, I, I was watching a documentary over the weekend um, about Elton John, and it's always funny when you see places that near where you grew up, and you think, oh my God, some of the greatest musicians of all time. Washing machine. Sorry, if you can hear something in the background, it's was washing Um What else did you learn about him from the documentary? So, I didn't realise that he broke America, so to speak, before the UK. And that's very unusual. He, a lot of artists, I think, come from America to the United Kingdom because it's a smaller market. But actually, he was more famous there. And that a lot of his songs weren't immediate successes. I've always just grown up being yeah, in Elsa awe. John. Yeah, But
1: also weirdly not knowing that much about him.
0: Yeah, I didn't, exactly. Um, but what I did know a lot about was um, his foundation and um, the work that he does with HIV and LGBT. And I, my mum my always told me that he was married before and then came out later on. And they said in, this, in the documentary that he just would not have been able to come out in the seventies. I yeah. mean no I mean Well he came
1: out was, in nineteen seventy six. Or um, early seventies on a Rolling Stone interview. Yeah. And was, And assumed everyone knew. Yeah. Out. But his marriage um was considered by lots of people to be a kind of covering up of yeah. it. Yeah. Which must
0: have been so sad yeah. for his wife. Yeah. Because And I, him. Yeah. I mean how unhappy I know you should be to have to feel like you need to get married to cover up mm. who you are. Mm. mm. That's
1: sad. Yeah, they they cover that in um, Rocket Man. And I would be interested to see what you think of it. If oh yes, you, if so Sharp. Sure, you
0: saw Rocket Man. Yes, what, in you haven't, you haven't told me what you thought of the film fully. So what no. did you think of the film?
1: I thought that you could tell that Elton John had had a role in making it. It was kind of as flamboyant as he is. And they were just, it was so theatrical and musical theatre. And when you see clips of what the costumes that he used to wear and kind of how he set himself up and this persona of Elton John, it's very, that is just threaded through the whole film, which is quite jarring at some points you're a bit kind of thrown into it and then Mm. they just all start singing and it's like oh wow that's a bit Mm. weird because it is a musical as Mm. a film so it's like mamma mia i guess was
0: bohemian rhapsody like that
1: no bohemian rhapsody is not like that and i much Uh, preferred the way that bohemian rhapsody was done because it was bohemian rhapsody was more about the when were they recording it, and then the songs come into... the. They're either performing it or they're okay. recording it, and okay. that's how they get the songs into the film. Okay, whereas it's not this, just like a musical. No, whereas okay. this... And I felt that sometimes it was a bit too pinning down these songs, which are so universal and can speak to so many people, regardless of what their like, individual circumstance is, that they made it so tied to one... Things. So, Tiny Dancer was probably the best example of this. He went to a party. This was just after he played the troubadour, which was one of the first gigs that he did, and that really. I mean, that's basically how he broke America, because mm. all of the, the people that needed to be there, like Neil Diamond, yeah. were there. In the Troubadour. Or in the Troubadour in yeah. LA. And they go to this party, and um, Bernie is there with a lovely, beautiful girl, who's a dancer, and then they kind of go off, and then it goes into Tiny Dancer, mm. and it's kind of like, oh that just, it feels a bit clunky. Okay wind Mm. but what i did love is the opening scene where he is basically in his huge costume and he's got the feather wings and like horns and is just glitter everywhere Mm. and his cool glasses he has so many cool glasses Um, and he goes into Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, I was going to say, how did they cover um, so that addiction? That's a huge part of how they tell the whole story. So yeah. they he kind of goes into this very clinical space and it's just this incredible clash of like the theatrical and the clinical and then it goes into a sort of songs. Um, <sighs> but actually, that was the other thing that I struggled with a bit. It did feel very... It vilified certain characters in his life and it felt very black and white that they were like this is a good person this is a bad person and the way that his parents were portrayed you'll never know how accurate it is but they would just were set up for me as like very the baddies mm. and um but one of the one of the and maybe they were but like one of the saddest things was his relationship with his dad and all he wanted was a hug from his father and then his father ends up leaving and he has second like two other children and then elton john goes back to see his dad and he sees his stepbrothers and they are treated in a totally different way and it's just this horrible Mm. that could have been what i had but i didn't Mm. and i was so alone and just not loved Mm. by his dad Mm. and his mum was quite like tough. I'd be interested to see how much he had to do with the screen writing of it mm. because you know in your life you have these key moments and things that people say to you. Yeah. And then they keep on going back and back and over you just run them in your head like a broken yeah. record. Yeah. There were lots of moments like that which I thought was really interesting because it could have come from his own writing and speaking to somebody but if you were doing a biopic of someone and they were not alive anymore Mm. you'd have to kind of interpret what what was key for them but Mm. I think you got that narrative that Elton John would have gone over in his head Mm. through his involvement in the film. Mm.
0: I also um, had forgotten not forgotten I knew but um, they just touched on his relationship with Princess Diana and Candle in the Wind and you know performing at her funeral Um, and every time another song came up i thought oh i love this song like i'm still standing mm-hmm.
1: like i've never um... listened to an album of like a music soundtrack mm. so much before even seeing the film mm. i am obsessed with the rocket man soundtrack yeah i think it, a <laughs> it's lot so good be... and taron egerton who plays elton yeah. john is fantastic
0: i wonder how they cast that that would have been so it's, difficult he's so
1: good you totally forget that you're not watching elton john what's your favourite
0: Elton John song Tiny Dancer I think mine's I'm Still Standing
1: yeah Mm. so that came on at the end it was just that was such a good example it's so cliche it's like he goes into therapy and then it's like I'm still standing (laughs) you know it's just it's like and then at the end it comes up with the kind of AIDS foundation that he's work he's done and then like meeting his husband David and Mm. having his children Mm. and that all is sort of as a byline right at the end mm-hmm. so they don't go into any of that mm. um it sort of stops at a point where there's just so much more that happened afterwards mm-hmm. yeah do you think there'd be a sequel <laughs> <laughs> rocket man 2 <laughs> <laughs> i don't know that that would be a sellout, out <laughs> if i'm honest <laughs> um but lastly my favorite episode of george ezra's
0: podcast is with elton john and yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to it's it. It's so good. Also, his interview he does, does with Piers Morgan is really, really good. Oh, I didn't listen um, to that. It's Piers Morgan's Life Stories. It's on YouTube. It was mm. probably done in 2010. Um, I, I, I quite like Piers Morgan's Life Stories interview. They're really interesting. Mm. Um, and he talks a lot about his struggles with addiction. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, his work with HIV.
1: Yeah. So, so with George Ezra, the, one of the reasons that it came about is that um, when... George Ezra had just brought out his first album, his manager, who liked to play tricks on him quite a lot, said, Mm. "Um, Elton John is gonna call you. And he thought that he was just like winding him up. And so when George Ezra picks up the phone, he's like, is this, I, I mean, I don't want to offend you, but are you actually Elton John? <laughs> and it was. And wow. he was calling him out to say, I love the album, keep doing what you're doing. And yeah. he, this is my, one of my favourite things about Elton John, is that he totally supports other musicians. Yeah. It was like, there's lots of collaborations he's done with younger artists to help them out. Mm. And he highlights lots of people who he thinks are not mm. getting enough recognition. Mm. And he is very, um, particular about not knowing new music and he does the same with new books and new mm. films and he doesn't ever download stuff he talks really interestingly about listening to something on your phone mm. because it's so distracting and that actually what you want is for someone to listen to it as a record because mm. then also you get the um the right order that the mm. musician has compiled the music in. not shuffled, not shuffled exactly and He just... His love of music and his love of supporting musicians comes across so beautifully in this interview. And his voice is just so rich Mm. and, like, Sounds Aussie, doesn't
0: it? A little bit Aussie. What is your favourite thing about him? Uh, Highlighting addiction. He celebrated 25 years of sobriety in 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, And sobriety, I think, is a huge part of him and his identity. And... um, now i'm glad we're moving into a phase where people are beginning to take it seriously and actually alcohol is a huge huge problem societally and i can't imagine what it must have been like being sober for the last 25 years because i feel like now we at least it's sort of in our cultural understanding that alcohol is actually quite bad for us and that we don't need to be drinking um but that was that's been very recent. I can't mm-hmm. imagine being sober in the 90s, early noughties. The second figure that we're going to be looking at today is a well, score of two in one. But a recent poll on YouGov found that 59% of Tories um, would prefer to ditch Northern Ireland instead of remaining in the EU, and 63%. Would accept Scotland leaving the UK in favour of Brexit. So essentially, what we're looking at is <laughs> the majority of the party that are in charge um, would right now Brexit would put Brexit above unity of the United Kingdom. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is I just thought it feels very backstabby. I, it just I just I feel, feel like very this rejected is, I just, by this. I feel I feel. Um, it's just gotten much, this whole topic. We've, we're now looking at the Prime Minister race. We had Theresa May bowing out very mm. solemnly. Did you see that speech that she gave? And she got very emotional by the end. and it was. Like, I just
1: saw all the headlines the next day and all the horrible, mm. just the misogyny in the headlines I know. was just I know. so, oh, it just made my heart sink. It was like, come on,
0: mm. this is... But but to be fair, she had been so robotic for the last three years, and then like, just in the last part of her speech, you just thought, ah there's the human being and there's the woman who's very dedicated actually, to serving her country Um, and I don't I just don't know what the world or the UK is going to look like in a few years. If we are favouring and by we I don't mean me, I mean the Tory party, are favouring not having Scotland and Northern Ireland in so that Brexit happens what like what i don't i don't understand what it's so warped yeah it is very warped and also i feel like given that we're in london or i'm in london i feel like it's a massive echo chamber yeah and i constantly think every single day that Everyone wants to remain. It was kind of a big mistake that people regret. Um, and actually everyone is sort of thinking the same thing. And And then it isn't until you step away from maybe London or just mm. the sort of echo chamber of youth that we are in. Um, and I actually think that if we had the referendum again, we'd probably still vote Brexit. Yeah. So why aren't we just getting on with it if... Mm. every you know the majority of the country wants to brexit
1: the media is so london centric and yeah. all of the conversations are so london centric mm-hmm. this is what has been i didn't really expect to realize that quite as much as i have but moving to edinburgh mm. you just don't talk about brexit so much anymore it's mm. just not really mm. such a huge force mm. and also not being in an office i think yeah um but i just don't talk about it so much anymore it's so it's such a relief mm. because it's just been this ongoing conversation for so long and I think everyone's just so bored of it mm. there was there was some news coverage I watched a few months ago um and they were say they were just going up and down the country and they were asking people if they were bored of Brexit and then it became Bob you're we like are you Bob
0: <laughs> of course <laughs> I'm very Bob <laughs> so what but what's this sort of air in Scotland about a second independence referendum do you think that's going to happen
1: I think that it's... uh, Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP are not going to stop until they get that second referendum. And what's irritating, and this happened in the general election, I think it was, that the SNP won in almost every single county, but only by a tiny bit. Mm. And I think because there isn't another major party that the the votes that weren't for SNP are all fragmented between mm. Conservative, Lib Dem, and Labour, which means that it makes the whole country look like they want to have independence and mm. for the SNP
0: to be ruling everywhere. Mm. But that's not necessarily the case. So YouGov essentially polled 892 Conservative Party members and they asked them these questions. They said, which we touched on two of them, would you rather, you know, Scotland, they would so 63% said that they'd rather Scotland leave the UK to deliver Brexit 61% said that they would rather significant damage to the UK economy happen in favour of Brexit Northern Ireland, that's 59% and then 54% all said that they'd rather that the that have, they'd rather the Conservative Party be destroyed than not have Brexit
1: whoa yeah and do they go into the reasons behind why they're so, like, dead set on it? I think I think we
0: all. I mean,
1: I don't particularly. Is it just is it that they they feel that it's, it's democratic and the referendum
0: happened and that was the result and therefore they need to deliver it. I think it's like, I I that I I it the, 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 the British public voted for Brexit. Mm-hmm. If they want to win the next election, they probably need to deliver Brexit. Yeah. And to be the most electable, mm-hmm. they'll probably need to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just kind of found that shocking. Like, the significant damage to the UK economy. Surely no one wants that. Yeah. But they'd rather that than, than not have Brexit. It just. I just felt like when I saw that... That poll, I just thought, wow, we have really kind of. It just feels very like black and white, and it goes back to what we were saying about referendums in general about how why was this even why did this even happen in the first place why was this even I just don't like
1: referendums. It's the same in Scotland. Mm. It just it as yeah, it turns something that's so complicated into Mm. this yes or no, Mm. and then it totally divides people, Mm. and and that's just it has so many wider implications this incredibly divisive nature of mm. referendums then can mean that you like we've seen the huge increase in hate crime and racism mm. and mm. all of these other social implications of
0: and then you've it's almost like it's shame. highlighted a really dark side of our some parts of our it has. culture and population and then the same actually. with um,
1: Ireland as well then you get like more fragmentation mm-hmm. within Ireland and it's just this horrible like, ripple effect of one political event just having such a huge impact on loads of other things and lots of the way that conversations happen and that's what makes me so sad about it
0: yeah absolutely what do you think of Boris what do I think of
1: Boris uh I read a Times article yesterday which was called did Boris really say that and it is just like horrible (laughs) it's (laughs) I think, 50 different things that he said. Really? And on on the list is, um, I don't know what a pint of milk costs, so what? Uh, He says that for Muslim women, it's ridiculous that they look like letterboxes. And he also said, I have more in common with a three-toed sloth or a one-eyed pterodactyl or a calamata olive than I have with Winston Churchill. Oh, that's weird,
0: because I feel yeah. like he idolises yeah. Winston Churchill. What is your theory on that comparison? Well, I was talking to this a lot of work about Boris, and um, essentially the last three guys left in the race were Gove, Hunt, and Boris. Mm-hmm. And the theory on Boris was... We were just talking about the sort of cult of personality and how mm. he's managed to make himself quite electable and quote-unquote relatable, yet being part of the so-called elite and, you know, public school, Oxbridge. Although he got scholarships at Easton. He did, and, and, and to Oxford as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's is, is is a very, very, very intelligent man, obviously. Yeah. But because of his slightly, you know, messy hair and his, you know, he gives this like air, air of being, you know, quite what's the word it's
1: like eccentric but in less quite threatening a, I mean, like less a endearing way
0: yes and we and essentially we were talking about how Churchill kind of did the same thing during wartime. Actually Churchill had so many failures mm. um for years before I was even asked to leave the I think it was British Army or got disbanded because of bad behaviour. Um and, you know, had so many affairs like Boris, serial philanderer had terrible alcohol problem um, I don't want to reduce him to that. I, I, I don't mean to, but I think but there that actually are, he kind of idolized. I think, is, yeah. I think he kind of idolized. I mean, he wrote a very famous autobiography mm. on Churchill, mm. Um, mm. and and I, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what life will be like with him as prime minister. It feels like he's been playing the long game, mm, really. He has. And and being mayor of London was a pretty cool
1: yeah.
0: starting point, and has now. Essentially, he will be prime minister. I thought that was weird about Gove, um, probably being excluded from the race because of all this cocaine stuff. I just was a bit fed up because Johnson has also done cocaine. Everyone's fucking tried cocaine, (laughs) like, do you know what I mean? It's so dumb, like, the amount of doctors, teachers, lawyers, people at university. Mm -hmm. I mean, I personally haven't tried cocaine, um, but god, what. 75% 75% of my friends at university have. Yeah. Um, so? Yeah, <laughs> we all drink to blackout yeah. at some point, points? and we've all tried cigarettes, and we've all... D- I feel like that was it's a so bit petty. reductive and really petty. Mm. The thing is that people have the issue is, is that he was trying to prosecute teachers when he was sec- uh, education secretary um, who had done cocaine and tried to prosecute them and put them in jail and all this stuff, and it was like, oh, you're hypocritical. But I think there's a difference between maybe cocaine use... You know, whilst mm. you're working, or daily, or like, you know, I don't know. But I felt like that was a really random reason for mm. someone to drop out of the race, given that he—sorry, he didn't drop out, but he became significantly less popular. Yeah. Um, but he's also Boris's biggest threat.
1: How do you think that the um, allegations and the recording of his girlfriend saying "get out of my flat, get out" um, mm. that recently came out? How do you think that will impact his Not very popularity? Much. Isn't
0: that so depressing? No, it literally won't. People will just be like, oh, I probably had a fight. Oh, it's probably fine. I I actually don't think that will impact him at all. I mean, look at Trump. I mean, it's grabbing by, you know. Yeah. That that Mm. doesn't have any issue. I mean, he's had many affairs in his marriage to Melania. No one really cares. Boris is a serial philanderer. No one cares. Mm. Um, So with the Winston Churchill thing, obviously we're not... I mean, it's weird
1: to compare them in some ways because... Churchill was like pivotal in winning the war like you can't deny that mm. but are you saying that the comparison is that there's lots of um, other
0: elements yeah. of Winston, Winston Churchill Winston Churchill is not this sneaky clean hero no, I totally. mean he was able to make decisions under pressure but yeah, okay but actually he's very flawed yeah. in so many ways but you're saying that in similar with Boris mm. he's got all of these weird
1: things in his past mm. and present mm. but everyone just doesn't really yeah. acknowledge them yeah
0: totally mm totally and actually he's the uh, word on the street was that he was trying to get other tory party members to put some of his votes to hunt so that the final battle would be between him and jeremy hunt because he actually has a better chance of winning right against jeremy hunt there's no way jeremy hunt will be prime minister no not after all the nhs disaster no so I feel like he was quite savvy there. That should be illegal, but it's not. Mm. Although one of Jeremy Hunt's pledges I did
1: quite like was that he was going to um, reduce the interest rates on student loans. That would be nice.
0: Yeah, that would be nice. I I, think we should just reduce student loans recently. I know, you can't. It's awful, isn't it?
1: £42,000. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's so huge. I know. Mm. The third figure that we're going to talk about today is a painting by Lee Krasner, who's born in 1908 and died in 1984. And the painting that we're gonna talk about is Untitled and it was done in 1946. And it's one of the kind of characteristic paintings. It is sort of layers of, layers of paint. And it's one of those things where people would potentially look at it and they'd go, anyone could do that, that's just Mm. paint on a canvas. And a lot of abstract expressionism, which is the movement that she is associated with. Does that
0: really piss you off when people say that? Really
1: annoys me, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I can imagine it does.
0: Um, And it's also...
1: It really annoys me when people say, oh, well, it looks like a child could do that. Mm. Especially when they talk about people like Picasso or Kandinsky, Mm. both Mm. abstract artists, because that's the whole point of their paintings. They were literally trying Mm. to get back to a childlike state Mm. and then paint in such a free and expressive way. Mm. Um, So the reason we're talking about this is that she has a retrospective at the Barbican, at the moment which I went to and would so highly recommend this is an incredibly well curated exhibition and it goes over two floors and it goes through lots of different um, kind of developments in her work starting with the portraits that she did self-portraits so she was classically trained and they are just so beautiful, these portraits. What does that mean, classically trained? So she went to an academy, basically, okay. and she learnt how to do life drawing. Okay. And her life drawings, I mean, they are like Michelangelo. Okay. She's
0: And then abstract so expressionism.
1: Sorry, what's that what Abstract expressionism, exp- yeah. Abstract expressionism. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that's not part of classic training. No.
1: Okay. Because that's that was the term that... Was, it, they didn't use it at the time. So it's a group of painter, painters um, that include her husband, Jackson Pollock. Yeah, um, and that's a good fun fact. Willem yeah. de Kooning, um, Mark Rothko, Barnett Newman, all called abstract expressionists. Mm-hmm. Um, but Lee Krasner, pretty much on account of her being a woman, was left out of lots of the criticism that took place at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a very famous critic called Clement Greenberg and he pulled an exhibition that she was supposed to be having and she just found that the critics didn't want to write about her work which is just so sad because she i think is the best of all of them and i don't think i really i wouldn't even have known i didn't even know who she was i'd studied art history really i didn't know who she was god and i also thought that she was a man because she changed her name to lee to be more lenore yeah, yeah to be more androgynous yeah but it's just crazy. She, she said that she felt like she'd been written out. Mm. And so the things that this exhibition explores, um, so it starts with her portraits, then it has it, her life drawings, and then she moves into abstraction, and um, which was kind of influenced by Jackson Pollock, and it, that you can see the relationship between their work. And how interesting mm. would that relationship have been? Quite torturous, I think. Like yes. quite a lot of tension. Alcoholism. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is that she decided not to have children, but he did want to have children. Okay. And that was a point of like tension between them. But mm. she felt like Jackson Pollock was her child. She had to look after him, and mm. and he'd have like tantrums. Um, and then he died in a car crash, and after that, she ended up taking over his studio. Oh wow! Which was. Like, that must have been so difficult Mm. and so painful. And lots of her work is quite monochromatic as well, The kind of, like, all the colour just drained out of it, and then gradually it comes back into her work. And I think that's, if she had any say herself over what she influenced in Jackson Pollock, it was that she... Got him to look at color in a different way. Mm. So she was influenced by people like Picasso and Matisse. Mm-hmm. Um, Matisse is a very famous like Fauvist artist. That was his. What's So that was all. That's again like art history tends to do this. They kind of sometimes the the artists themselves have their name. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it comes from the critics who kind mm. of group people together afterwards. And Fauvism was a kind of example of that. So okay. um, they did an exhibition, and they had very, very bright, bold colours. Um, this is in 1905, I think. And there was a critic, and he said that there was a like a beautiful classical sculpture, so it looked very realistic. And that was in amongst all of these other like crazy, wild, hmm. very bold, bright paintings that Matisse and others had done. And he said that it was like Donatello parmi les fauves, so Donatello was a um, Renaissance sculptor. Mm-hmm. And so he felt that this was just this weird juxtap- juxtaposition. And then the fauve, which means wild beasts in
0: French, okay. became their name. Okay. So... All I remember from school is George Brock and Cubism. Um, <laughs> but th- th- that began to sort of... Uh, yes, yeah, so there's different... What's the difference between abstract and abstract expressionism? So abstract is more... Um, that's just...
1: an adjective is it an umbrella yeah abstract is is very very broad okay so that would be the opposite or not the opposite but a different way of describing something so you might call it figurative Mm -hmm. so figurative is when it's got figures okay okay um or you could say um mimetic would be another way so mimetic is when it looks like a photograph i okay, guess okay yeah so but abstract is is not okay so it's not what you it's see it's not what you see okay um and the abstract expressionists were much more about what do you feel okay and um, there's a lot of very emotive pieces and this is the other thing that i think it's probably the
0: most misunderstood of all art movements. I think it's I think so even I don't really understand you just think abstract and you think crazy a child could do it doesn't it? Yeah, yeah yeah
1: and you also think Jackson Pollock in particular so he would have these huge canvases on the floor mm. and he'd drip paint over them mm-hmm. so that was also a point in the exhibition that when she moved into his studio the scale of her work changes mm-hmm. hugely yeah of course because she's actually now got this space yeah and her paintings are, they're just so rich and mm-hmm. deep and you can't look at photographs of them. This is the thing that I always say to people if they don't understand abstract expressionism or if they mm. they kind of say, you know, those things like, oh, well, anyone could do it. If you actually stand in front of it, you have a totally different feeling, mm. especially because the canvases are normally pretty big. So you go close to them and then you just feel like you can fall into it. And the whole thing is your whole field of vision is taken up by the paint. And... But yeah, going back to the kind of misunderstood thing, with, even at the time, it was misunderstood and it was taken to be this expression of like American freedom of speech, kind of look at all these, the way that we can paint and that we will put it into galleries. Mm -hmm. And um, the CIA actually used abstract expressionism and funded lots of exhibitions overseas as part of the, like, war with the soviet union ah because it was so they saw it as symbolic of like american freedom okay and the opposite of this very realistic like quite structured russian art that was going on at the same time Mm. so they wanted them to be in like juxtaposition Mm. but the artists themselves never asked for their work to be used as a sort of celebration of America.
0: Mm. If anything, it was totally the opposite. I know, but there there was the tension between the Soviet Union and America was huge. I mean, even just referring back to the Elton John segment, I mean, his his song Nikita, um, which was about the Cold War, and people thought it was about this very pretty Russian girl in the video, but actually Nikita is a male name, Nikita Khrushchev. um, And it just, when... Watching that part of the documentary, I thought, God, we do always forget that they hated each other to the mm. point they would use anything against mm. them. This case being one of those mm-hmm. examples. Mm-hmm.
1: But nobody knew at the time that it was being funded mm. by the CIA. So yeah. It's only come of out recently. Not. I mean, of course not. Yeah. Um but yes, yeah, so what they actually were talking about, well, this is a kind of interpretation, but it's when you look at what they were reading, what they were talking about, like mm-hmm. letters and just going deeper than beyond that paint on the canvas. Because mm-hmm. Clement Greenberg, the critic that I mentioned, he thought that abstract expressionism was the perfect example of modern art because okay. he was, you were only painting paint. okay. So he felt that this flat surface... It was He talks about like the kind of flatness. The more flat it was, the more modern it was. And he felt mm-hmm. that this was the absolute pinnacle mm-hmm. of modern art. And that it had nothing other than just paint. But actually, they were very concerned about things like N- Nagasaki and Mm. the bombings, Mm -hmm. and at the time, um, McCarthy was going on, like, witch hunts for any communists. Oh, huge. These were artists who would have had communist leading, like, leanings, and so they would have been terrified of that. Mm -hmm. And you had this, like, huge austerity, and just so many different problems all over America that they were in some ways expressing on the canvas and like this drowning feeling. Mm. So there's one painting by Jackson Pollock, which is called full fathom five. And that is a quote from the tempest and it's all about drowning. So you you look at the titles as well. That's Mm. where you start to get a bit more of the anxiety that they're putting into their paintings, but Mm. then they had to cover that up as well. Or they, it became so abstract that then you've got paintings like the one that we're talking about, which is untitled and Mm. it just doesn't have a title. So that's just, again, it just it gets misunderstood and people don't get what it's about until you really look deeper into it. Um, and another example of that, which I thought was great in the exhibition, there's a series of four paintings which she did after Jackson Pollock had died. Mm. And they it's kind of like dismembered bodies and like eyes and breasts and like legs kind of all just melted into each other and there's four canvases and you stand in the middle of it it's quite a weird experience in the gallery to just have like all this on one side all on, on all sides of you but what I noticed was the colors she used were really similar to a painting by Picasso which is called Demoiselle d'Avignon which is all about um kind of sexuality and it's a depiction of prostitutes in Barcelona in the yeah, light the district one. yeah but it was like this painting had just sort of melted and been like shattered and broken up into her four paintings wow but also from a woman's perspective yeah. and she was kind of claiming like I am not I'm going to be child free as yeah. well That that was a big statement that I think was being made in those paintings mm. yeah Gosh, it's
0: so interesting when, you, when we unpick all these sorts of things going on. Yeah, in the world, you could just you could honestly read about it and study it for hours. Mm. But
1: I'm so glad that we're finally seeing Lee Krasner as an artist in mm. her own right, because mm. for way too long, even in the last couple of years, she's always been referred to as the wife of Jackson Pollock. Okay. And I listened to. Um, A podcast with the curator of the Abstract Expressionism exhibition at the Royal Academy that took place a couple of years ago. And I just don't like the way that she talks about her because, once again, the first reference to her is uh, Jackson Pollock's wife. And there was a beautiful painting that was included. But she said, Yes, there are lots of women artists that we've included in this exhibition on merit, not because they're women. And it's like, okay, great, but you even saying that it's on merit makes implies that it's not. Yeah, I know. Do you know what I mean? When it's just, she didn't talk about representation in a very nuanced way at all. And I just wish that we could stop talking about women artists and like keep on focusing on that. We, I just want to us to get
0: to a point oh, no. where it's just We've got to keep ploughing through and mm. keep making sure we have equal numbers and, and yeah. representation, and and just and just keep going at it. Yeah, and and hopefully in fifty years, hundred years, we'll look back and think, God, how ridiculous that we refer to everyone as women artists, women authors, women. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know that I looked through my old art history paper for IB. So this was mm. two thousand and thirteen. There were eighty works of art, and you had to write about one of them, and. Wow. There were 48 named works, so lots of them were medieval, like Greek, so you don't know who did them. Mm. Do you want to know how many women were on the list out of 48? Out of 48? Yeah. 12. Zero. What? Nothing. No women? No. So it went from 500 BC up to 1968, and there wasn't a single woman on the list. I chose a quarter just to sort of be generous and (laughs) I I shouldn't have. And that wasn't that long ago. God. It's just absolutely insane. But it's the same with Mary Cassatt and Bert Morisot. They were absolutely brilliant impressionists. But when I was taught about it in university, we had a section on the women artists. Like they were all put into one lecture. (laughs) And it's kind of like, well, we could have done just one lecture on one of these women, you Mm. know, just have them as artists in their own right, stop putting them into their little boxes and like calling them the wife and it's just, yeah, it is
0: changing (laughs) slowly Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Figure Podcast, we really appreciate it and I hope you enjoy it and we will be back next week uh, with a special guest and please follow us on Instagram at figurepodcast and on Twitter at Podcast. oh we have something else that you can do as well there's an app called Flick
1: yes there is and we have a group which is for the figure and if you would like to give us feedback if you'd like to tell us any figures that you think would oh, be good to cover please join that so all you've got to do is download the Flick app and then search for the figure and it should be there and then you can join the chat and mm. we'd love to hear from you
0: absolutely And please rate, review, and subscribe. Oh, yeah, please, 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 please rate, review, subscribe. Um, Yeah, it's a very saturated market, and we would really appreciate uh, your rating. Any support you can give us. Yes, definitely. Until next week. Bye-bye.